0: Thank you Well do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 7. We're looking at this one of the uh, crucial moments in this gospel story, uh, which in many ways centers around it as you as you read the Gospel of John, it's very hard to find loci around which to gather the movement of the gospel. but one of the, one of the ways in which you may do this is to look at the gospel, around the various feasts of the Jews that were held and were coming to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles uh, that uh, really occupies chapters 7 through 10. What, what has just occurred in the previous section has to do with another feast, the Feast of the Passover. We know the date. We know that uh, this section, chapter 7, is takes place in October, A.D. 29. Uh, The the, the Passover that has just occurred uh, has uh, taken place in that year. Uh, These events that we're going to be reading about from chapter 7 to 10 take place within six months of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. So things are moving forward. Things are beginning to come together. And what we find in these chapters is A kind of hardening in the hearts of the authorities. Uh, We could have called this whole section, Killing Jesus. He isn't dead yet, but all of this section. uh, There's a series of books, Killing Lincoln and others, and I thought it would be trendy to do that, but but I didn't. I resisted. But you could call this whole section, 7 to 10, all about Killing Jesus. This is where it all begins to take shape. And that's interesting because here we are in John's Gospel and we're only at chapter 7. And already, talk about Jesus' death is going to be the dominant thing that's taking place from this point onward. If anyone ever, ever had any doubt that the story of Jesus finds its central point in his death, then you just have to look at the amount of, of space that is occupied in each of the Gospels with the events leading up to... Uh, The death of the Lord Jesus that is in fact why he had come into the world He had come to lay down his life for his people So here we are six months away from the actual death talking about the death of Jesus And we're looking tonight simply at the introduction to this section Uh, As I've said this feast of the tabernacles held in October 29 AD at the end of chapter 6 we have found the ministry of Jesus in Galilee has been uh, unsuccessful. That's a difficult thing for us to take into our minds, and, and it was obviously difficult, as we'll see in a moment, from, for others that were close to Jesus. We find at the end of that section, the end of that whole period that began with the most spectacular miracle that you can imagine, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe as many as 20,000 people being fed by Jesus in that miraculous way, supernatural. People who were there could not doubt what had happened. In fact, it was etched on their minds. You couldn't help talking about it. They went looking for Jesus to do it again, and they came to Him again and again, wanting Him to do it again. And there's been that great section of teaching in which Jesus explains that In wanting simply to be fed, they've missed the point. They've missed the point because they haven't seen that Jesus is the bread from heaven. He's the one who gives not only food that lasts for a moment and satisfies, but He gives eternal life. Well, they've come. They've seen that. They've been part of that. And yet that whole section ends with people taking offense at Him, leaving Him. And Jesus even having to challenge his disciples and ask them, Are you going to leave as well? Everybody else is going. Are you going to join the Exodus? Jesus' ministry in Galilee is, from a human point of view, an unsuccessful ministry. Well, he's still going about in Galilee. Unsuccessful, though it may be he hasn't given up on them. He's still going about in Galilee. And it's in that context then that we come to chapter 7. And we're confronted right at the very beginning of the chapter with pervasive unbelief. Unbelief that we've seen in chapter 6. The people of the Galileans, they've rejected Him. They've taken offense at His teaching and they've left Him. And now Jesus is facing pervasive unbelief among His own disciples. And in the context, you see, do you notice that the whole section, this whole section, from chapter 7 to 10, is introduced by the theme that I've I've already mentioned, the theme of killing Jesus. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, that is John's shorthand for the Jewish leaders, the Jewish uh, hierarchy, the, the, the civil religious hierarchy, they were... Seeking to kill him. There is in bold steps. They were seeking to kill him. Back down in verse 19. Jesus says to them, later on, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And in response, they say that he's got a demon. He's giving him this idea. Who's giving you this idea? You have a demon, verse 20. And they asked rather sarcastically, who is seeking to kill you? Knowing very well that they were doing that. So there is this animosity that is now hardening, and it will end up in the death of Jesus. They are seeking deliberately now, intentionally focused in getting rid of Jesus. And what is remarkable about all of this, and I I won't enlarge on this this evening, but what is remarkable is what led to this animosity. What it was that was the final straw in the decision that they had to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And if you've been following the the series so far, you will remember that it was all because Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He heals him. The man is raised up and is able to walk and lift up his own bed and walk. It's an amazing miracle. But because Jesus did it on the Sabbath day, that was the last straw for them. It's as if they're missing the wood for the trees. Here is this great miracle. God has intervened in the life of this poor man and has restored him to full health and strength. And they can't see the miracle in the hand of God in that. All they see is that their rules for what can or cannot be done on the Sabbath day. Their own man-made rules have been disturbed. And they are now fiercely antagonistic. They are now resolved in their mind. They are going to kill Jesus. That's the context of this whole section now as it develops. And it's against that background, then, that we are introduced to Jesus' brothers. His brothers said to him, and we sense a a, a sense of uh, determination in them, and, and certainly frustration, I think, and impatience, perhaps, with Jesus that we'll explore in a moment. Their brothers, his brothers, spoke to him. Now, Let me just add a little caveat here. Jesus had brothers. They were his natural brothers born of his mother. They were younger brothers. We don't know if he had sisters as well. I mean, but he certainly had brothers. And the the one doctrine or the one tradition that has emerged in the Roman church of Mary as a perpetual virgin is blown apart, I think, by this very clear statement. They just made it up. They just made it up. It's just one of those inventions of Rome in order to maintain this Mariolatry that they have developed over the years. Mary, their mother, does not emerge at this stage with a strong faith in him. She's been going around with the brothers and they are presented at various times already in this gospel. In chapter 2 you have Mary is presented in that chapter as trying to frustrate the the plan of God in Jesus' life. And here his brothers do the same. In fact, we're going to be told in a moment that his brothers did not believe in him. I, I think John includes these facts to encourage you, if you come from a family where there is strife over the things of God, where Perhaps some of your siblings don't believe in the Lord Jesus, or perhaps your children don't believe in the Lord Jesus, or parents perhaps, or other family members. It's encouraging to find this in the story. And the interesting thing, of course, is that these were the brothers of Jesus. They'd been with him. We're told that they were traipsing around behind him along with the disciples. There was Jesus, the disciples, his family. They were there. They were... Especially when he was popular and on the rise. And there were crowds going to hear him. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be seen to be part of the road show. The Jesus road show as it made its way through Galilee. And John is writing this gospel. At a time in which, of course, the story is, has well developed from this stage. The people who are reading this for the first time know about these brothers. They know that these brothers eventually come to follow Jesus. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. They come to believe in him. They're mentioned in Matthew 13. James, in fact, would become one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, mentioned in Acts 15. And this same James would actually write a book in our New Testament. Isn't it amazing that at this stage, and you can imagine the shock of the people who first read this gospel? They knew about James, the great church leader. They knew about the brothers of Jesus who were the great believers. And here John is saying that this crucial moment in the life of Jesus, when the authorities are plotting to kill him, and Jesus is being abandoned by all his friends, by his followers, that at this stage, this vulnerable point in the life of Jesus, his brothers did not believe in him. And and you can see uh, carefully the connection between their unbelief in verse 5 and their excitement in verses 3 to 5. They say to Jesus, they come with this proposal, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples there also may see the works you're doing, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They're rebuking Jesus. They're giving him some advice here. But if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And why did they want Jesus to seek to be known openly and show himself as a miracle worker to the world? Verse 5 tells you, because because not even his brothers believed in him. So that, is the, that sentence explains the motivation of verses 3 to 5. Now, we'll, we'll open that up in a moment, but just pause for a moment to say this. This is a shocking revelation, isn't it? This is doubly shocking. If they had said to Jesus, we actually don't think you can do this. We we think all these miracles are just smoke and mirrors. That this is just, you know, some engineering behind the scenes. That that in fact, this is all just a fudge. That this this is not real at all and we don't want to be associated with you. If they'd said that, we could maybe understand that. If they said, we're embarrassed by what you're doing, we, we would have understood that too. In fact, they never question what Jesus is doing or has done. They, they've seen what He ha- is doing and has done. They believe in the miracles. They believe that He can do these things. They're amazed that He can do these things. Actually, they love the fact that their big brother, Jesus, can do all of these things. And they really want him to make an appearance in Jerusalem and reverse the trend. They think, if only you went to Jerusalem, you can reverse the trend. These people in Galilee, they're numps, numpties. They're numbskulls. They, they're idiots. I mean, they're just, the, you know, Galilee, for goodness sake. Is not, you, you don't go, if you're really running for office, Jesus, you don't go to Hicksville, USA. You go to Washington. You go to the big centers. You go to New York uh, or or even a little place like Philadelphia. You go there in order to try and drum up some support, they're saying. And the passage says they wanted that because they did not believe. You see, those people who'd left him, the Galileans, and the brothers who were still with him, were unbelieving, and their unbelief stemmed from the same source. Both of them wanted something from Jesus. The the Galileans, we learned, wanted food for life. Lord, what we really like you to do, you can talk about eternal life as much as you want. You can talk about being born again as much as you want. That sounds all very good. But actually, we saw what you did that day when you fed the multitude. And we really would like if you would do that every day. We wouldn't have to work. We would just have to turn up here every day and you would feed us. It would be a ticket, a meal ticket for life. These men, these brothers, they looked at Jesus for what they could get from him. They wanted name recognition for being part of the family of the great man. Both groups wanted Jesus ultimately to be a political hero. And of course, what's just particularly disturbing about the brothers is that they were his brothers. They thought they knew him. They'd seen him grow up. They'd listened to him talk. They'd followed his career. They'd heard his most famous sermons. They even thought they were on his side. They were his followers. And yet, you see, what they say to him is actually what an outsider would say, not an insider. What they say to him is something that an unbeliever would say. They, they're throwing, actually, an unbelieving challenge at Jesus. You, did you see the, the sense of the challenge in, in what they're saying to him? Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Nobody works in secret if they want to be known openly. Nobody does what you're doing, just talking to us and talking to your followers and your disciples. If you really want to make an impact, you have to go public. And what we're being told is that that was motivated by their unbelief. Their unbelief. If Jesus really is the Word of God in flesh, why is the Word only spoken to the inner group? Why is it not published? Abroad, why will he not do that? Now, why is unbelief so serious? Why is the unbelief of these men so serious? We've already come to see in John's gospel why unbelief is serious. In fact, John wrote this book. He tells us right at the very end, when he's giving the reason why he written the book, he tells us this. These things were written so that you may believe or may be confirmed in your belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and... That believing, you may have life in His name. That's why believing is important. Believing is important because it's by believing that you get life. That is eternal life. We know it's eternal life because we've been told that in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And we know that what eternal life means is that by believing in Jesus, we escape from under the wrath of God which is upon us until we believe. So John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon them. In other words, here we are, we're born with the wrath of God upon us. We are born condemned. And every day we sin, we condemn ourselves again and again and again and again in the eyes of God. We are born condemned. And the only hope for those who are condemned to the wrath of God is believing in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we are left exposed to the wrath of God, we're left naked with nothing to clothe us in the presence of God, nothing to give us the right of access into the presence of God. We are utterly undone, we are lost because of the way we have treated God by not believing in His Son. These men believed, but they were not believers at this stage in their lives. That's the shocking revelation that John gives to people. These men who become well known in the church, these men, one of whom becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, or the lead pastor in the biggest church in Christendom at that point, were at this stage not believers. They did not have life, they did not have eternal life. They were under the wrath of God because whatever it was they had for Jesus, they did not have saving faith in Jesus. And if that can be true for these men who were Jesus' brothers, it can be true for you. You can be in the orbit of Christianity. You can kind of believe certain things about Jesus, and the wrath of God still remains upon you because you don't believe in the real Jesus. You haven't trusted in the real Jesus. You haven't followed the real Jesus. You want a Jesus who will do certain things for you. But you're not come to Jesus for salvation. You haven't understood that the killing of Jesus is essential to your salvation. And you're come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. To bring it up to date, no. To truly believe in Jesus, you must believe in the biblical Jesus. They didn't believe in the biblical Jesus. So they come to him with this proposal. And I want you to to see again this proposal. Let's look at it again more closely. Like his mother, back in chapter 2, there's a real parallel between his mother and his brothers here. His brothers want Jesus to work signs and wonders. His brothers said to him, leave here And go to Judea, that your disciples there may see the works. Uh, They mean what works? They don't mean the works Jesus has just been talking about, by the way, in chapter 6. The works there that he wants to talk about are not his miracles, but the work he does in your life, the work he does in transforming you, the work he does in saving you. That's what he wants to talk about. They're not talking about those works. They're talking about the miracles, the signs. We want people to see the works you are doing. That sounds very like his mother back in chapter 2. They're at a wedding banquet. And the wine runs out. And Mary, who I think was the wedding planner, she seems to have a very key role in the whole thing. She's supervising what's going on. And uh, she realizes that, the, that the, the father of the bride has not made enough provision for The wedding and the wine has run out. She's embarrassed. And she says to her son, you need to do something about this. I know you can do it. Nod, nod, wink, wink. I know what you can do. I I want you to, to do something. Basically, that's what she says to her son. She gives him an order. Son, do something. Fix this. And you remember Jesus' response to Mary was rebuke. Woman, he says, distancing himself from his mother. Respectfully, but nonetheless, distancing himself from her. What does this have to do with you? That's what he says. Or with me. What, what does this have to do with me? This is your problem. Not mine. And he says to her what he says to these people. My hour has not yet come. Now he goes ahead and he turns 500 gallons of water into 500 gallons of wine, which I would like to do that same miracle here from someday, someday uh, in another context that I won't even mention this evening. But, but there you go. Jesus does that. He does that not because she asked him, but he does that to display his glory. But here we find his brothers doing the same thing, making the same mistake as his mother. They're misunderstanding Jesus just as much as she did. And uh, what we're to see in this misunderstanding of who Jesus was and why he'd come into the world, these frequent kind of even right at home. Here is a, here's a, here's a right at home misunderstanding. That's, you just think of Jesus and his humanity here. His mother should have had a better understanding about who he was there for, what he was there for. Don't you think? I mean, she'd seen angels. She'd heard wires of angels. She had seen, she knew this is the miracle baby. This is the real virgin birth. The only real one there ever was that came with spontaneously by an act of God implanting this baby in her womb. She had known the miracle. She had seen the gold, silver, and whatever it was. Frankincense. Myrrh. She would seen that. I got all mixed up there with other things. Stop laughing. She'd seen all of that. She should have known better. These brothers had seen the miracles he'd performed. They should have known better. But do you see? Their misunderstanding is a microcosm of the larger conflict between Jesus and the world. And so Jesus responds to them, as he'd done to his mother My time has not yet come. They were driven by their own image of what the messiah should be. They thought of a political messiah, political figure. They wanted Jesus to do what a wise politician should do. Go where the people are. They're acting almost like their self-appointed campaign managers. They were like the little guy in, in West Wing who's always telling the president how he should present himself and appear before the people. These people are trying to take that role and tell Jesus what best to do. They wanted their famous brother to be successful. The honor of the family was at stake. They were arguing that to be successful in his campaign for Messiahship, he had to go where the people were and get maximum publicity. And Jesus' response is to say that he was not there to work into their timetable or anyone else's timetable. Only that of His heavenly Father. And He says to them, You go to the feast, I'll wait to get instructions from the Father. You go to the feast, I'll wait. Now the key word here is this word time or hour. Because it's reminding us that Jesus throughout all this, all this, His life is working according to God's predetermined agenda. The plan and purpose God had for His dying and departure from the world. That really is in his mind. That's why we're told right at the beginning they were seeking to kill him. That's where he's going. That's his destiny. He has come into the world for this. He's come to lay down his life. But he has done it. He's come into the world to do it not in the world's time but in his father's time. And there's no doubt that although the time has not yet come, The time is going to come. What the brothers did not see was that the opposition to him was growing, that it was deeper, greater than they could ever imagine. And that was the difference between their time and Jesus' time. Look what Jesus says to them. Your time is always here. He's saying to them, you know, you can do what you like, basically. You're not under orders. I'm under orders. It's okay for you to go uh, into Judea and go up to Jerusalem. Nobody's going to hunt you down and kill you. They don't hate you. The world cannot hate you, he says to his brothers. Why can't they hate them? This is the reason, I told you it earlier, they don't believe. And because they don't really believe in Jesus. Do you understand? The world does not hate them. They're absolutely under no risk whatsoever going up to Jerusalem because they don't really believe in the real Jesus. The world doesn't hate you. Your time is always here. You can do what you like. You can move freely. You can go up to Jerusalem. You can mix there. You can, you can be seen there and so on. Nobody is going to annoy you or disturb you. And that's one of the reasons why you can speak so optimistically. That if I go up, it'll be okay. It's because you actually don't see what's going on here. You don't understand the spiritual conflict that's going on. You don't understand that the world does not recognize the Messiah. You don't understand that my very being here in the world as the God-man, as the perfect man, is an indictment of the world. It is the condemnation of the world. Sometimes we don't realize that, that the presence of Jesus is not a comfortable presence. The presence of Jesus and, by extension, the presence of the church in the world is an indictment of the world. We don't understand that we don't have to say anything condemning. We just have to exist. And our very existence is an indictment of the world. Some or other, we've got it into our heads in evangelical circles that if we just... Play the game, or you know, are nicer, or we kind of leave out the things that people are offended by. That somehow or other the world will love us and welcome us. And Jesus is saying, Well, they may do that, but it's the only reason they would do that is because you don't believe. You don't believe. Because if you really believe, then you're alongside me, and the world hates me, and the world will hate you because. You love me, and you're related to me, not by birth, but by grace. The world can't hate you, he says to his brothers, because you're motivated by the very same thing the world believes, and the world is motivated by. But he says, notice his language, he puts it emphatically. The word me comes first, me they hate. Despite their optimism, there was no neutrality there in Jerusalem. Despite their optimism that that he would be well received, the crowd in Jerusalem were not sitting waiting for this Messiah to show up. In all their festivities, they would not be celebrating the arrival of God's anointed one, certainly not this anointed one. They did not recognize him. They did not love him. They did not want him. They hate him. And why? Because His very existence is a testimony that the world's works are evil. He has exposed their deeds. Deeds they thought were okay, were right and fitting. Deeds they thought were acceptable to God. Deeds that accorded with their standards. And His teaching, it was His teaching that disturbed the world's sense of who it was. His word challenged the world's desire to be itself. It aroused the hatred and violent opposition of the world. And so he says to them, You go up, but I'm not coming with you. I'm not coming with you. And he didn't go with them. Later on, he went up to the feast. But you notice he does not go as they asked him to and go publicly. He goes privately. He goes in disguise, as it were. He goes incognito. He goes up secretly. He goes up as one of the pilgrims. He waited until the authorities had done all their searching, looking for him. Until they'd come to the assumption that he wasn't going to come and was staying away. Only then did he go up to the feast. While Jesus' brothers were driven by popularity and politics, Jesus is driven by knowledge of who he is. He's driven by the will of his Father. He's absolutely submissive to the will of his Father. And what we discover here is that the real issue, the real issue lying at the heart of this is his brothers did not know who their brother was. They did not know who Jesus was. Look at these people in Jerusalem. When they were looking for him, they're asking the question, where is he? And there's muttering about him among the people. And some are saying, he's a good man. Well, he was a good man. Others were saying, no, he's leading the people astray. That was a very bad thing. The language that's used there is something that's forbidden in the law of Moses and was punishable by death. So there is a whole range of view about Jesus. And there is this utter knowledge, fear among the people. They knew that the authorities were out for him and so nobody talked. Nobody spoke openly about Jesus. Things are hardening and death is approaching. Now what relevance does this have to you and me today? Well the relevance it has is to do first of all with whether we believe in Jesus. And the understanding that believing in Jesus immediately reconciles us to God and alienates us to the devil and the world. The very same grace that reconciles me to God alienates me from the world system and from Satan. That's a reality we have to come to terms with. The brothers were irritated with Jesus, impatient with Jesus. They're lecturing Jesus because he he doesn't do what they want him to do and we sometimes reject Jesus' people, i.e. the church. We, we reject the church for similar reasons. They're actually criticizing Jesus' method. Why are you happy that there are people talking about killing you? Why are you content with being a minority movement? Why are you not upset by these people who are abandoning you and leaving you? And not walking with you. How many people feel that about Jesus' church? How how many people are frustrated that the church is not more influential, the church is not greater in its influence in the world? The church in the world has always been a minority. That seems to be the way God wants it to be not only a minority, but a, a a persecuted minority, a hated minority. A minority of people that frustrates the living daylights out of people in the world. They don't know what to do with us. Some of you might be tempted to turn away from the church the way people were tempted to turn away from Jesus. Because it frustrates you that if God is real and God is active and Jesus is real and Jesus is active in the world, why in the world are we not taking the world over? The answer is Jesus didn't. And he never promised He never promised that his church would. He always was straight with us. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The world hates the church because it hated Jesus. It's still the reality. You have to come to terms with that reality. If it frustrates you, I'm sorry, but it's reality. Don't let it scare you. Don't let it push you away from Jesus. Understand that the God that we serve does not need to be in the the majority. You know, people who are secure in themselves don't mind being in a minority of one. You ever notice that? But really strong people. They don't mind being in the minority. God. God is really secure in himself. He has nothing to prove to himself. He doesn't need to be in the majority. He has always worked with a remnant. It's the old message of the Old Testament. He has always worked with a, rem- with a remnant. In the New Testament, he says the same thing about the church. When, he's, when Jesus is sending messages to the church, what does he say to the churches? He that has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Even within our church, we pride ourselves in being an evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-loving church. But we understand that even in a church like ours, not everyone really knows. Not everybody necessarily really knows Jesus. People who think they know. Which is why I'm asking you this evening... Are you really believing in the Jesus who is? Not the Jesus of your imagination, but the Jesus who is. Now you're following him. Whatever comes. Whatever comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, our Lord Jesus did not shirk the responsibility you laid upon him, but in every detail of his life, followed the timetable that you had prepared for him, and tonight as we face again the tension between belief and unbelief, we pray that you would so encourage our hearts as we read this story with the knowledge that in fact we are truly trusting, simply trusting Jesus. We pray for the growth of that faith and confidence in the days to come. In his strong name we pray, amen.